Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. And welcome. You have tuned in to episode number 186 of Linux in the Ham Shack. And I'm Russ, K5TUX, coming to you from Studio 3D in Southwest Missouri. And across from me is Cheryl. Hello, everyone. And we also have from not quite springtime yet, Big Sky Country, Montana, Bill, and E4RD. Good evening, everyone. All right. So let me fade that out and. Let's see. Is it going away? Look at that. It went away. How about that? Cool. <laughs> it's a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff works. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, we have a show to do. Let's talk about ham radio regulations in the Netherlands. New Dutch amateur radio regulations highlight the possibility of future restriction in the 23-centimeter band due to the Galileo GPS system, which operates across 1260 to 1300 megahertz. The Netherlands regulator, Agent Shop. Telecom <laughs> have issued a memorandum concerning uh, unattended amateur radio license, licenses for repeaters, beacons, and APRS nodes. So it looks like there's some uh, band changes or at least uh, maybe possibly some uh, power restrictions going to go on there. So I didn't look at this, but the Galileo GPS system, that's worldwide, I assume, since it's GPS? I believe so. But this is only affecting operation in the Netherlands? That seems interesting didn't go on and look deeper in this particular article i just picked this up uh this morning so uh i didn't look at it either so there you go but we will have a link in the show notes so if you want to check it out you're certainly welcome to well i feel like we're doing a bunch of flash topics tonight <laughs> yeah it could uh, be that way <laughs> we'll see how it is maybe we all just want to get out of here who knows I thought this article had more information than that maybe i was reading a different one i <laughs> i read a lot of oh no i was thinking of the canada article was a bit yeah well we're getting to that so let's talk about april fool's day which we talked about in the last episode i believe and we talked about the am rally that was coming up and apparently there's some other stuff going on the weekend of april fool's day including a radar challenge and radar stands for rapid deployment of amateur radio and portugal is having a national soda event that summits on the air in portugal and i know there are quite a few mountains out there so that should be interesting. Uh, so April 1st, and let's see, 1st is the what? Saturday. 1st is the Saturday, so the 2nd Sunday. So it should be a pretty busy weekend out there. And yeah, definitely a lot of activity on the bands. Okay, so anyway, links to all of those events, the Portugal Soda event, the Radar Challenge, and the AM Rally that we talked about before will be in the show notes. So check that out, get on the air, and contact some people. And now, Bill, you can talk about driving while... Just- Directive driving in Canada. Sorry. (laughs) It's an update. He's so sorry. (laughs) So sorry. We need some Justin Bieber here. Anyway, uh, in Ontario, a temporary exemption for amateur uh, amateurs in Ontario is due to expire on January 1st. 2018, the RAC Ontario South Director Phil McBride, VA3QR, and the RAC Northeast Director Al Boyd, VE3AJB, have obtained some letters of support, but more are needed. They are looking for additional letters of support from organizations that support, that's a lot of supporting, that support amateur radio communications. We need to show our provincial governments the importance of amateur radio and why we require the ability to communicate from our vehicles for public service events like parades, walkathons, bike rallies, and most importantly for emergency communications and amateur radio emergency service, ARIES, activities that support the first responders like police, fire, and EMS. So, you know, this is going around in the news everywhere we just talked about what Washington state was uh, just talking about this exact same thing. Right. And uh, you know, this is sort of an important thing as more of these, uh, you know, anti-texting, anti-cell phone laws get placed in uh, state legislatures. Uh, it's important that we keep an eye on these things to make sure that there are either, uh, you know, a memorandum of understanding between Aries or the uh, AWRL or, you know, the state uh, section for excluding amateur radio service in this particular uh, area. So uh, I just saw this and I was like, well, we should go ahead and talk about it some more because it, it is a continued theme that, that is, is going through the legislatures in the various states right now. 
So, yeah, definitely. If your state is uh, currently in session, like ours is here in Montana, uh, pay attention to uh, the state bills that are going through the House and Senate because they can become law real quick. Yeah, and it's good to keep in mind that it's nice to have the exemptions. There's not a lot of hands-free for amateur radio. That really isn't a thing, at least not that I'm aware of. I don't hear a lot of people talking about doing voice-activated mics and stuff in their vehicles, pretty much all PTT-type things. Yeah, generally it's all PTT, but they do have uh, they do have headsets and uh, you know some radios do come equipped with Bluetooth and stuff like that. So it's not impossible. It would just uh, you know basically uh, turn all your older equipment into obsolete gear. That would be bad because I don't feel like buying a. <laughs> yeah, and I don't really either. And some of these laws are actually getting to the point where they're wanting to ban hands free as well. So I'm not sure how they're going to adjudicate that. <laughs> Kind of hard well, it's easy for them to do that in the in the state legislatures and Senate, so that's why it's important that you stop it there. Right. So, uh, you know, this is happening in Canada. It's happening around here. We talked about it in Washington. Just pay attention and make sure that your section managers are paying attention as well. If you don't hear back from your section managers on items like this in your state, you should probably think about replacing them next time they come up for re-election. Yep, you got to have the elected representatives on the pulse of things especially stuff that kind of matters and this is one of those things that matters so moving on from our amateur radio topics we're going to talk about some open source topics and the first one we're going to talk about is samba or samba however you want to pronounce it it's uh, a dance and it's also software package that allows you to integrate between linux and windows Uh, we had some feedback uh, it was either last episode or the one before that. We were asked to talk a little bit about specifically SMB client, but I guess we can touch on Samba a little bit. From the Samba website, it's defined as an open source free software suite that provides seamless file and print services to SMB slash CFS clients. Samba is freely available, unlike other CFS slash SMB implementations, and allows for interoperability between Linux and Unix servers and Windows-based clients. And the current version is 4.6. Samba, I think some of the other distributions have Samba as old as 3 point something, but they all still work. It's just feature sets that are missing. So Bill put in here, what are we supposed to talk about? Well, (laughs) (laughs) I guess we can talk a little bit about what Samba does. It's, um, It's pretty simple what Samba does. It's a server that runs on a Linux machine that allows... You know, it listens on the same ports that Windows would for doing file sharing, and you can set it up, and it comes pretty much working out of the box. There's some basic configuration you can do to set passwords on things and user permissions and home directory structures and stuff like that. But by default, if you just install Samba and fire it up and then start a Windows client on the same network, and as long as your work group is set the same, you will pretty much be able to access home shares on that Linux machine. I don't think it's available to guests by default. You have to have a username and password, but I think it, uh, as long as your username and password match, it should work fine. I know I usually have to, to run the SMB password to set up the password. I don't know if that's necessary anymore, but I usually do it anyway. There's, there's just a Linux pa- uh, Linux command called SMB password, SMB P-A-S-S-W-D. It's the same as the password command. It just sets a a password. Um, I think it's a B-tree hash or something. Um, for the service. Right, for the service itself. And as long as the username and password in that file matches the Windows username and password, uh, you will have access to the share. And, of course, you can do all kinds of other crazy things with Samba. Uh, some people are actually using it as an Active Directory drop-in. Because uh, it integrates with LDAP for authentication and uh, setting up file permissions and uh, remote home directories and, and all of that stuff. So if you don't want to pay for Active Directory, you can use Samba. That I haven't gotten very deep into, so I don't know how effective it is, but I know people are using it, so it must be pretty good. I was playing around with a tool called GOSA, G-O-S-A, which is a GUI overlay for configuring Samba authentication and Samba file sharing. Unfortunately, I didn't actually get a chance to finish playing with it before the show, so I can't really talk about it. But it's a fairly simple install. That that much I did get to. Uh, you can just do an apt install GOSA, G-O-S-A, on a Linux uh, Debian machine, Ubuntu, so on and so forth. Probably SUSE as well. or If not, you can download the source package and whatever. And it, it kind of walks you through. You have to have 
an LDAP server someplace. It doesn't have to be on your local machine. Uh, but in a testing environment, I had it on mine. You know, it walks you through setting it up, and then it lets you manage Samba. Uh, and it looks like starting with version 4, Samba can also run as an active directory domain control. So, right, so it can be a PDC or a BBC. Yep. Yeah. So if you're into Active Directory and your company's paying for it, you might want to take a look at Samba. Some companies just like to pay for stuff, so you know, you'll be out of luck there. But uh, <laughs> I think we had a specific mention from the gentleman who asked us about Samba because we was in reference to uh, connecting to a Windows 2000 server. I'm pretty sure this was in the last episode, and I've already forgotten who it was. So if somebody wants to go back to the show notes from the last episode and tell me who it was, that'd be great. They wanted us to talk about SMB Client, and SMB Client is basically an FTP client for Samba. So I'm not sure how much there is to say about it, but if you install Samba and the Samba Client and the Samba Utilities on your Linux machine, you can just run SMB Client as if you were doing a CLI-based FTP, and you can connect to a Windows share, or you can connect to another Samba share. So, you know, if you've got a Windows machine out there that's that's sharing out publicly a directory, you can do SMB Client slash slash hostname slash share, and then, of course, it'll ask you for your credentials if you need them. And then you have a CLI FTP interface. You can do gets and puts and DIRs and and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I was trying to get it to actually run on this uh, this Mac here using Homebrew, but I never got that far. So uh, yeah, so the email was from Gene BX eight AAD. Yeah, that's who it and, was. Yeah, and he needed to do some automated backups of files from a don't laugh Windows two thousand file server. But he wanted to do it using Linux. I used to do this all the time. So <laughs> you can actually uh, create a mount point as well for your for your SMB share or your uh, Windows 2000 file server and uh, keep the Linux box actually mounted to the box and use any kind of backup tool like rsync or whatever if you want to just create a copy, a mirror, or whatever you're trying to do. It's actually quite simple to do. And I believe you can even embed the uh, username and password if you don't really... Uh, don't really care about it being in your uh, mount tab, <laughs> right? Uh, so it's all it auto mounts and everything else. And I know I did this to back up uh, uh, some instruments and stuff like that in a laboratory environment uh, from a Linux server. So it was mounted to all the uh, individual instruments, and then we just uh, rsync them uh, overnight, and uh, we'd have a snapshot of what was going on in the box. So uh, it, it is actually quite easy. And Windows 2000, obviously, I think that runs the older uh, version of uh, the protocol, but it should be fine to run it with uh, the latest version of Samba. Uh, he didn't mention what kind of server he was actually running, so can't really tell there, but you should probably be able to get you know, one of the later, greater versions of uh, Samba, and it's probably backwards compatible. I'm sure it is, and you can also, if I remember correctly, use the dash capital A option to specify a, an authentication password file so that you can keep your client passwords in there so you don't actually have to pass them on the command line, and then you can restrict that as necessary to only give you access for the person who's running SMB. You know, that'll kind of tighten that up a little bit. And, of course, the man pages and the info pages and even the dash dash help on the command line give you all kinds of helpful information about SMB clients. So it should be very easy to automate a file transfer and backup solution using it. Uh, it's pretty powerful um, and it's it's very basic and uh, simple and a very shallow learning curve when it comes to uh, using it for that kind of thing. Yeah, if he, if he has any more questions or whatever, yeah, just send us our, our way and we'll, uh, we'll research it. Yep, and if anybody has any questions about additional functionality that Samba might be able to do, just send us an email or, you know, drop us a voicemail and we'll answer any questions we can. Uh, there's also the Linux in the Hamshack Google Plus group, which is a great place to ask questions because there's a bunch of people in there and they usually get through to the answers before I even know there are questions. So, uh, it's another, <laughs> another way to, to get answers, especially if you need one in a hurry. There's also IRC too. There's a Samba IRC channel. Always a good place to get information. I, I get a lot of tech support from, from IRC. I mean, that's a great place to go. Yeah, yeah, quick, quick responses. For yep, sure. super quick. Well, depending on what channel you're in, some some people. I mean, there's like <laughs> two two thousand people in the channel, and they take their sweet old time about answering. But <laughs> it's still faster than and cheaper than calling up, you know, the actual support line. Yeah, 
All right, so that's our little treatise on Samba for the evening. So let's talk about open source world. It is an open source world. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. So uh, open source world, uh, you know, I normally don't promote other podcasts or whatever, but uh, this one was worth a listen. I listened to the TED Radio Hour podcast episode entitled, titled Open Source World. The era of open source has led to countless innovations. When does it work? When is it in chaos? In this episode, TED speakers explore how open source is changing the world or changing how we build, collaborate, and govern. Uh, the speakers talk about where open source started, the, the decimation of Gopher. And if anybody can remember that, Gopher, uh, they wanted to actually monetize Gopher at one point, And that's basically what uh, stuck a nail in it and uh, called it dead. And then we got the web. <laughs> uh, Linux, the philosophy of open source, democracy, and uh, differences in crowdsourcing versus open sourcing. So uh, it's, it's uh, you know, the, the radio hour is a short program. Obviously, they, they, they take a short, shortened snapshots of several speakers. Um, so if you just want the, the quick abridged of it, uh, version, just go ahead and uh, check out the show notes or, or Google, uh, you know, over there to uh, NPR and, and catch that episode. It, it is quite interesting. And uh, you can listen to the individual speakers in, in length uh, if you go to the website as well. Um, so, yeah, definitely worth a, worth a listen. All right. Very good. Always nice to have new resources to offer for folks because, I mean, obviously we don't have all the information out there. And TED Talks are, are wonderful things to listen to. I mean, there's a lot of intelligent people out there with a lot of great things to say. And I've never been disappointed listening to someone do a TED Talk. So No, this was just right up our alley. So it was really good. All right, very good. So let's move on to a LinkedIn project, which is kind of interesting because I hate LinkedIn. But anyway, <laughs> tell us about Flashback. Okay, so this is sort of a Flash topic, and uh, surprisingly, it's called uh, uh, Flashback. LinkedIn open sources Flashback, internet traffic mocking tool. Flashback is designed to mock, mock HTTP and HTTPS resources like web services and REST APIs for testing purposes. It records uh, the requests and plays back previously recorded uh, transactions, which is called a scene, so that no external connection to the Internet is required in order to complete testing, according to uh, um, the article from uh, TechCrunch. So uh, it's just another new tool for uh, doing uh, basically mocking uh, traffic on your, uh, on your APIs. So, uh, you know, take a look at it. You know, obviously it's being used at LinkedIn for uh, their testing for their, their service, and they tend to handle quite a few users. So <laughs> might be an interesting tool to look at and compare to what you're already using if you're uh, a developer of, uh, of web uh, services. Oh, so you're testing your own API from the client side. Gotcha. I was That's thinking correct. it was the other way around. So, Oh, okay. no, no, yes. It's like an outside test framework or a mocking framework for, uh, you know, testing what you've already built. You know, this would be something in addition to doing, uh, you know, your normal, you know, test framework inside the application for test-driven development or whatever you want to call it. All right, cool. So if you're into doing any kind of programming, especially web programming, this might be a great tool to get in touch with. I don't know how many of our listeners are web programmers, but uh, I think it might be a fairly small subset, but who knows? (laughs) All right, so moving on, I threw this in here because... It's something that I recently found out about. I've been trying to figure out an easier way for me to get my hands on tech news and open source and amateur radio topics without actually having to go out in the world and find them every time we do a program. So I came across this kind of a neat project called Ticker, T-I-C-K-R. And what it does is it aggregates RSS news feeds into a literal ticker. It's a desktop ticker for Linux machines. And what's nice about it is it's very configurable. You can tell it where you want this ticker to be on your screen. You can make it always on top or not. So you can put it at the top, the bottom. You can make it full width, not full width. You can, you know, stick maybe if you have a certain part of your screen, like your top menu bar that's not fully used, you can put it there. Uh, You can program colors, transparency, backgrounds, all of that cool stuff. And then you can tell it what web browser you want to integrate i think it defaults to either i think it defaults to firefox but you can change it to chrome or chromium and then you import into it opmls or single xmls of news or well actually any kind of rss feed sites and then it will run a scrolling ticker across your desktop wherever you happen to put it this worked out super well for me Um, i keep it at the bottom of my screen So when I'm running, and it's basically at the same height 
as my bottom menu bar, but it only exists in the part of it that is, generally speaking, empty. And I keep it always on top so that no matter what's going on on my screen, there is a ticker scrolling by on the bottom with news articles. And in my case, I have a bunch of tech sites, things like TechCrunch and the Register's Tech Blog and ZDNet and CNN and like all of these sites that aggregate tech content. And I have it scrolling on my screen all the time. And as I'm doing stuff, I'll, you know, take a look down there every once in a while. And if I see something that's interesting, I just click on the link and it brings it up in my browser and I can say, oh, this is kind of neat. So this is a great way to have streaming and constantly rotating technology information coming at me where it's always sort of in my view, but not really in my face so that I can find stuff that's worthy of talking about on the program. For me, that's exactly what I'm doing with it. Now, when I was doing that, I was like, well, I'd like to find a bunch of sites that would be good for me to, you know, have all this information come from without having to actually go find all those websites, because that was what the problem was in the first place. So it turns out Google is my friend. I did a Google search for it, and I found a website, the link to which will be in the show notes. It's from a guy's blog. His name is Philip Smith. And he published this back a while ago, so some of the links don't actually work, and you can update them accordingly as you want. But it's an OPML file download of, I think it was 112 different technology news sites that you can just directly import into Ticker, and boom, you have all of the tech information you ever wanted. Uh, That worked out really well for me, and I've been using it for the last few days. And uh, I'm really loving it, and I'm hoping that it will generate some great content for the show. And if nothing else, it'll keep me a little more informed about the world of technology. So Very retro. Very retro? What, news tickers? Yeah, I remembered seeing these, uh, like, a long time ago (laughs) on Linux desktops. Basically, when uh, Windows came out with Active Desktop, you saw a lot of these things kind of pop up in Linux. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I, I find it, for, for me personally, the way my brain works, it is probably one of the best ways to get information into my head because something needs to be there and just sort of presented to me, and then I can say, oh, I'm interested in that, click on it, boom, and away you go. So so a news ticker is kind of the way I think. Well, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, I use uh, I use Feedly. <laughs> right, I've used Feedly, too. RSS aggregation. Right. And then Hacker News for kind of random other stuff. Right, but things like Feedly actually give you like a page with aggregated news information, which you have to consciously go to. See, if I have to think about it, I'll never do it. So oh, yeah. this actually puts the information in front of my face, and I don't have to think about it. I just happen to glance down at the bottom of my screen, and I'll say, oh, look, there's news about you know this chip maker in Asia. Oh, that's curious. I'll check that. It's <laughs> kind of like reading the newspaper for me. That's what I, that's what I see Feedly as. <laughs> right. Just kind of always go to it in the morning. It's like, oh, okay, 60 new things. Let me look through them and look through it on the phone or anything else like that. <laughs> no, and I, I get to be that. a big Google Reader user. So, you know, when that went away, I, I almost died. <laughs> right. And I get that, but I sort of have so much going on that I never even think about trying to catch up on the news. This just makes it first and foremost without me having to do anything. Can you, like, bookmark things and stuff like that in it? Yes, you can. Sweet. Yeah, it has all kinds of features that I didn't even touch on, uh, but the help documentation is excellent. The link to the project is in the show notes. The link to the, the OPML download of all the tech sites I found is there. And, of course, you can add all of the ones you want. You know, you can fi- As long as they pr- provide an RSS feed, you can have a bazillion of them. It doesn't matter. So same thing with Feedly and all the other ways that you can aggregate RSS. I just thought it was neat, and it's, of course, in the Debian repos, and it may be elsewhere as well. You can just apt install ticker, and there you go. So we're going to move on to Linux in the ham shack and Bill's been diving into other distributions again. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> well, really just one. I was revisiting, I was revisiting the community editions in Manjaro, which of course is the easy install for Arch. And, uh, I can't remember why I uninstalled it the last time, but I'm sure it had to do something with OBS. So I was, I was searching around for some issue on deep end. Yeah. I'm still running deep end here. I came across a you know a link that had uh, discussed the the community editions for Manjaro and that there was a deep end uh, edition. So with uh, basically a pre-installed live CD with uh, you know with uh, deep end already on it. So I wanted to check out the the integration and, and how different it was from you know the straight deep end installation, which is still you know uh, just sitting on top of Debian anyway. So uh, so I loaded it up on the the virtual box, gave it a ride. And uh, it worked. It worked quite well. Uh, after I did the system update, which you know, if you install any version of Manjaro, it's it is a 
it, it is a rolling release, so you're going to see a, a zillion updates. Most of the items disappeared from the dock, which I thought was kind of strange. All the stuff was still there. So I just re- reattached some stuff to the dock just to make sure everything was functional, and it worked well. And I also installed the, the 4.9 real-time kernel and, and stuff like that, and everything worked, and you know it, it operates exactly the same as being on Manjaro. You know, there's no difference. It's just they try, you know, changed the, the, the GUI for the uh, front end. And the integration is quite nice. I mean, it, it looks yeah, spot on for what I have right now. And, uh, you know, it is, I think, maybe a version, maybe like 15.3 if you were using deep end versions. It might be just a slight behind the beta that I'm running right now. But, uh, but yeah, it will look great. So, I mean, if you want the deep end feel, you know, there's, there's already kind of a pre-installed look and feel uh, edition of it straight from Manjaro. You have to go into the community editions and, and download that differently. Now, there was an upgrade to Xorg that required me to use Pac-Man directly, which is, of course, the package manager. So I added that in the show notes as well because I had to do it on both of the two, uh, two community editions that I downloaded. It'll definitely get past any uh, error you have with the regular GUI updater. Um, with replacing files and stuff like that that you know complain in that uh, GUI installer. So I also saw that they had a Budgie uh, version of Manjaro as well. So you know me being a big fan of Budgie and Solus, I tried that as well. And uh, this one was a little bit different. When I, uh, when I installed it and I ran the updates, when I rebooted, <laughs> the first time I rebooted, I got a, a dialogue that said, you know, do you want to load the current theme, load the uh, you know, old theme, or cancel and I noticed that the GDM and stuff like that loaded up just fine behind that error box. So I just said cancel. Um, so that was kind of weird. Then I ran the updates again and I went looking for the kernel manager, which if you use Manjaro, you know, that's uh, you know, it's one of your, your, your settings items in the, um, the settings manager. But it, yeah, I couldn't find it through settings in this particular uh, budgie t- uh, you know, desktop. So if you go into the normal budgie settings, all the normal stuff for Budgie was there, but I couldn't. There was no icon for the kernel, so I had to run Manjaro Settings Manager separately in order to access it, in order to throw on the 4.9 kernel. And uh, you know, when I rebooted that time after the kernel reboot, everything was fine again. So um, if you're if you're a fan of, of Arch distributions, and uh, you know you're you're starting from scratch, and you, you want one of these two desktops, uh, you know, definitely the uh, community editions are the way to go. They they did run quite nicely and. Uh, like anything arch it does run quite zippy i might consider uh i might consider changing again for it so <laughs> i didn't put any links to the actual downloads um but i'll get those into the show notes and uh we'll go from there but uh yeah no change in the uh, lhs scores on those the readiness scores i mean it has the aur system for uh, for packaging uh you know the extra stuff for uh, for uh you know all the ham radio stuff and it is all pretty much up to date I believe the only one that's a little behind is probably CQR log at four point or two point oh four. I think you said you just updated it in yours, what, to two point oh six? Two point oh five, I believe is what was on the two point oh five. Yeah. So yeah, it might be a, a version behind, but uh I, I think they also have access if you want the git the actual git version of uh of CQR log, it is there. However, every time someone does a commit, you're going to get a notification for an update. I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> so if you're on AUR packages, don't get the Git ones. You know, get the release build so that way you at least get normal release numbers instead of every time someone changes a, a, a comment <laughs> in the repository, it doesn't require you to recompile and re-upgrade everything in there. So, uh, you know, buyer beware on that. So, uh, yeah, I like both of the desktops. And that's really what I look for. <laughs> that's why I change desktop so so much. <laughs> right, you're like I always the, change it based upon looks. You like the eye candy, just like me. Yeah, I mean Linux is Linux, so you know the under undergarments don't really matter too much. You know, it's all the same. You know, somewhat. Right. You know, some would argue that you know you better optimization and so on and so forth. So, uh, but I mean, for the normal user, you know, these would be these would be great if you just wanted that kind of desktop with the Arch background. And the access to all the AUR stuff. I mean, it's definitely the way to go. All right, very good. I'm gonna. I might have to check out this Deepin thing. Pop up a virtual machine environment, see how it looks. Since I know, yeah, it's pretty I'd... slick. It already comes installed with the uh, the the client stuff, so so you can resize the window and everything else. It's it's quite nice. Pretty interesting. But I'm going to talk about another distribution, one that I mentioned in the last episode, and said I didn't get a chance to play with it, but I did get a chance to play with it today. So there we go. I did it in a virtual machine environment in, under VirtualBox. 
And what this is is Gecko Linux. And I'm just going to read a little bit here from the Gecko Linux website before I talk about it. It's a Linux spin based on the OpenSUSE distribution with a focus on polish and out-of-the-box usability on the desktop. It is available in Static, based on Leap, and Rolling, based on Tumbleweed Editions. Features include an installable live image around 1 gig in size, individual editions for several popular desktop environments, and I'll let you know what those are in a second, carefully selected open-source desktop programs and proprietary media codecs pre-installed and ready to use, stylish open-source font rendering configured out of the box, optimal power management with TLP pre-installed, and more. Gecko Linux prefers packages from the Pac-Man repo when they're available, whereas some of OpenSUSE's default packages don't work with patent-restricted features, even if the features are installed from other sources. Gecko Linux does not force the installation of additional recommended packages after system installation, whereas OpenSUSE pre-installs patterns and automatically installs recommended packages dependencies, thus causing many additional and possibly unwanted packages to be installed the first time the package manager is used. Gecko Linux's desktop programs can be uninstalled with all of their dependencies, whereas OpenSUSE's patterns often cause uninstalled packages to be automatically reinstalled. So that was a few things that came directly from the Gecko Linux website. Uh, it did mention the fact that it comes pre-configured with a bunch of different desktop environments, and there are lots of them. Cinnamon, XFCE, GNOME, KDE Plasma, Mate, Budgie, LXQt, and one without a desktop environment at all. And all of those are you know available as a download via the Tumbleweed rolling release or Leap as a static release. I chose the budgie version just because I'm kind of hip to budgie right now. So, oh, sorry, bougie. Bougie. <laughs> yeah, bougie. So that's the one I picked. I picked the tumbleweed version of bougie, installed it in a virtual machine environment, and then installed a bunch of ham radio packages to see how they worked in the ham radio world. Now, the first thing I noticed was that in the same way that OpenSUSE does things, you have to add additional repos if you want to get ham radio software. I installed like all of the community repos, which you can do with a single click. But in order to install, to install the ham radio repos, you have to know what the URL of the ham radio repos is. And to me, that's not intuitive. So I kind of dinged OpenSUSE for that, uh, which is why my LHS readiness score may not be as high as some of the other distros we've talked about. However, it's very good looking desktop, as we all know, bougie is. It doesn't have a lot. It didn't have a lot of like uh, customization when it came to desktop look out of the box, but that's not really that big a deal. You can always download themes and desktops and all that kind of thing so not not a big deal uh, but it does look very nice out of the box you can't really tell that it's open SUSE underneath because when you're running bougie it's just really flashy and has you know the docklet and all of that kind of cool stuff and uh, the installation procedure was very nice you run it in the live environment and then you choose the installer which is on the desktop uh, i don't think there were more than six or eight clicks involved uh, all of which were very intuitive and you had a perfectly running system. You reboot and all is well. Uh, once I got the ham radio repos installed in there, uh, I installed some basic stuff. I installed Chirp. I installed FLDigi, WSJTX, CQR log, and I think there were one or two other ones that I tried. Now, this I did notice that MariaDB was not installed with CQR log, so that is apparently a bug in this. Um, I doubt they'd call it a bug, but the fact that a dependency is missing is a bug to me. And it was the latest version, 2.05, although my version of Chirp that came with the system was from back in December, and it immediately complained about the fact that there was an update when I started it. So not everything is completely up-to-date, but it's all functional. Uh, of course, HamLive was installed by default uh, with the first Ham Radio application I installed, Everything worked straight out of the box. WSJATX looked great. Uh, FLDigi worked perfect. CQR log worked fine once you installed MariaDB. Uh, Chirp, of course, worked fine. So, uh, and of course, once you had repos installed, then using YAS2 to search and install applications uh, was super easy. So, uh, overall, I thought it was very easy to use. And considering it's not a Debian based distribution, uh, I give it some pretty high marks. And I find myself very comfortable with Debian and don't like getting out of my comfort zone very much, but I could find myself using Gecko Linux very easily. So based on all of that, I'm going to give a LHS readiness score of 4.0. Well, I just looked back on uh, episode 176, and uh, we gave uh, Tumbleweed 4.5. 
Where did the extra half a point go? Uh, who was reviewing Tumbleweed, though? You or me? It was me. Yeah, there we go. So I, I was a bit more generous, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. You might be a little more yeah. comfortable with RPM-based distros as well. So, And, you know, 10 episodes ago, we had exactly the same problem. So that's been around for a little while. So maybe one of these days they'll get around to fixing that. Maybe we need to talk to the maintainer. One thing I did want to touch on that was the thing I just put in the show notes is that there was last episode of the episode before I was talking about Brian Lunduke's thing about some of the things he thought Linux should have. And one of those things that he mentioned was variable sized icons, which means you can resize any icon to any size, not just your entire desktop. When I was playing around today with, and the thing of it is, I can't remember which, I can't remember if it was on my Debian box or if it was on the OpenSUSE box, but one of them allowed me to right-click on icons and then change that individual icon to any size I wanted, independent of any of the other icons on the desktop. So that feature oh, is yeah. in it's it is in Linux. It's already there. It does exist. So there you go. Cool. Yeah, I, I don't. I normally don't run any icons on my desktop. <laughs> the only one that gets uh, cl- uh, cluttered like that is my Windows boxes. Yeah, um, I actually use fences on my Windows box to keep my icons organized. Well, la-ti-da. <laughs> yeah, so maybe if we ever talk about Windows stuff, we can talk about fences. But that's not that's neither open source nor free, so we don't talk about stuff like that. But, you know, if you have to use Windows, you might as well use something that makes Windows palatable. <laughs> so, <laughs> And that's all I've got in the way of topics uh, for our first three segments. Unless anyone in the chat room wants to speak up and say anything about anything, we have some music to play. And no one's talking about anything in the chat room, so we're just going to move on to the music. And this week, I picked a song by a French group called The Green Duck, and they do Irish, Celtic, and folk music, for whatever reason, even though they're French. This one came out in November of 2016. It runs a little over four minutes long, and it's a song called Blow It Away. And, I don't know, I've been in kind of a Celtic folky mood lately, so I thought this one was pretty good. So we'll play it here. And then we'll get back to talking about stuff. I met a girl And tonight we're gonna drive a long, long time I got a girl And tonight we're gonna leave it all behind How long where's the time is gone We have not young anymore You know what we're waiting for
dangerous with for life to come But it will be dead and gone From this moment we are born We are born was the green duck with blow it away and bill in the chat room is talking about the fact that it sounds like little lion man and it kind of does and they actually cite <laughs> they actually cite them as uh one of their influences uh groups yeah, like no the, kidding so <laughs> <laughs> i was like what song am i listening to here <laughs> uh, but to say that it sounds like the song of a big name act is probably a compliment yeah well you know uh robin thick would have a problem with that <laughs> okay uh but anyway november 2016 the green duck blowed away a uh, group out of france and i actually thought that was pretty good even though if it does sound like other people <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it sounded great but it's like wow that sounds very familiar <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> very i do too familiar you if know? you listen to a lot of irish music uh it all starts to sound kind of familiar so <laughs> Anyway, I hope everyone enjoyed that one. A link to the track, of course, will be in the show notes. And you can always look up The Green Duck. Uh, they have a Facebook page and a website and all kinds of stuff. So there you go. And they play lots of shows, just not any in the United States. So moving on to announcements and feedback. We basically just have some fests, uh, fests to talk about. Festivus. Fe- Festivus. Yeah, that's not till December, though. Festivities. Uh, Festivus sure, for the rest of like us. <laughs> exactly. I figured I would throw this out there. RARS Fest, which is in Raleigh, North Carolina, is coming up in April, mid-April, which is very soon now. We had an ambassador for that last year, but my attempts to contact said ambassador for this year have fallen on deaf ears, apparently. So if you happen to be in the Raleigh, North Carolina area or somewhere around there and you want to be an ambassador for Linux in the Hamshack for RARS Fest, please get in touch with me like real, real soon uh, and we'll set you up so that you can do that. That'd be a lot of fun uh, for you, hopefully, and, and uh, you know, get the word out for us. That'd be great. And we're also looking for an ambassador for the Southeast Linux Fest. That comes up in June and that is also in North Carolina. Actually, it used to be in south, south carolina. carolina yeah now it's in north carolina so no oh, i guess we just need to spread the word all through the carolinas but yeah if you can do either one of those uh that would be great i mean we we get the booth we've already been offered a booth at southeast linux fest we just don't have anyone to man it you get some sh- free swag if you do the thing and you get to promote linux in the ham shack and you know you don't it doesn't really cost you anything except a little bit of your time so and it keeps us from having to drive 14 hours 14 to hours out to south carolina <laughs> or north carolina yeah Links to the RARS Fest, Southeast Linux Fest, of course, will be in the show notes. Uh, and then, of course, there's Hamvention 2017 coming up in the middle of May. We're all going to be there. We're pretty much set up. We finally have our booth reservation. We will be in booth 5007. That's 5007, which is in Building 5. We'll be right next door to Tom Medlin, W5KUB. So that'll be nice. We'll be a couple of rows away from Heil. And uh, it should be a good spot for us. So come check us out, Booth 5007. Of course, that stuff's out on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else because I'm also promoting our 2017 Hamvention Go... Well, it's not GoFundMe. It's, it's generosity, generosity campaign. Right. So that's actually doing really well considering we're still seven weeks out from Hamvention. And only 10 days into it? Nine days? No, we're like 16 days in, I think. But we're over 25% funded right now. And that's very good. Um, unfortunately, our booth rent went up this year, so we definitely need whatever help we can get to pay for the booth. We did get a little bit of a break from the Hamvention guys, but a normal booth costs $600. Aye. And um, we, we're we not paying $600, but we're paying a, you know, a significant Most chunk of, of that. that. So, right. so we definitely need some help. Um, 
that's a lot of money to you know for for a project that doesn't actually make any money that's a lot of money to, to just kind of throw okay. out there right. so yeah. if you can we help also take bottles of scotch on the uh when we're there on the <laughs> you just want to drop that on by right that little bucket we're fine just yeah. fine with it we'll accept that as cash so anyway the generosity campaign is going please donate if you can even if you can't please share it everywhere share it on every social media night or social media network share it at your local club wherever you can share it even five dollars will help out um like i said we're, we're doing pretty well you know considering we still have a ways to go we appreciate everybody who's donated so far but just keep sharing it i'm trying not to make a nuisance of myself i'm only posting every four days or so um just so everyone's not inundated with it but uh, uh we do need the funding to get out there because it's not it's not a cheap endeavor so <laughs> you know i said this on facebook maybe i should promise that i will take my test and pass it because i'll just keep taking it well if, if you, people will donate if, i because i really i don't have a whole lot of time between now and saturday to study right. since i've not really cracked open any books or anything to read about anything so right. i would just go through if you can do the practice test and if you can hit those at 80 percent or better you're going to pass your test all right cool. so i would just keep doing that and then review your missed answers memorize which one it was and just keep, right. on track. keep going from there yeah, I would not screw around with reading the book and anything else like that. It's such a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, funny, I, I figured that out when I took the ACT in high school. I spent yeah, months, yeah, like, drooling over that <laughs> book and then got in there and went, you've got to be joking. Well, guess what part yeah. of this podcast is getting cut out? <laughs> that? <laughs> yeah, sorry. <I> don't know. <laughs> it's all a scam. It's all, yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, all it's right. very easy. I think it's, it's, it's much easier now than it was when I took my technician and probably Russ took his technician back in the 90s. Yeah. Well, yeah, and because was, you guys questions? Had- it was like 75 questions or something like that. Yeah. And you had to ridiculous. do Morse code stuff too, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, if you I wanted did. the Tech Plus at the time, right? You did, you know. And they do have a choice. The VEs have a choice of the tests that they put together and it's like that. And it's been my experience that they try not to put too many of mathematical questions. Generally, you'll only get like one question on diagramming. So you know, you you figure you can weigh your odds, not have to worry too much about that. Right. Alrighty then. All right. Well, you can put that out there if you want to. We'll see if it works. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. Because then we get the three sessions on Hex Chat running. <laughs> <laughs> and then we all three have a chance to get prizes from uh, Tom. <laughs> and he doesn't have to go that far to give it to us. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Hey, and Tom, it, just, just hand that yeah, over. Yeah, hand the, it over uh, the, the little hallway. curtain there, you know. <laughs> 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 all right that's our invention news and we're going to move on to cheryl's recipe corner Yay. yeah i was madly typing this at the beginning of the podcast so anyway <laughs> um the recipe that i picked this week is for muffin tin omelets they're a perfect thing if you're running short on time in the mornings but you want something warm to eat i used to make these for us all the time russ would have them on his way out the door because it's something you can pop in the microwave for a minute or so and go right out the door with it and they look like a blueberry muffin or whatever but it's actually eggs and meat and vegetables and stuff so for the muffin tin omelets you need 8 to 12 eggs uh, some milk or heavy cream shredded cheese chopped meat like a deli ham canadian bacon sausage bacon you know whatever you want make sure these items are cooked if they're not already pre-cooked um some chopped vegetables onion green pepper green onions mushrooms whatever you want again might want to saute these so they're not crunchy omelet unless you like them that way some salt and pepper salt excuse me salt and pepper yeah salt, salt and pepper and <laughs> salt and pepper or any other spices and herbs that you prefer uh to taste and you throw the eggs and the milk in a bowl mix it up add the cheese and veggies and stuff to it and uh then dollop it into little muffin tins and you can either use little paper cups or you can just you know grease your muffin tins and bake them for bake them at 350 for about 20 minutes and then stick them in a ziploc bag in the fridge and after you're you know in the mornings when you're running short on time pop a couple in the microwave and you know microwave them for about a minute and you've got breakfast and i think russ used to like these uh, i love them okay. i love i love anything you can just kind of pop in the microwave for 30 seconds and have a breakfast i mean that's that's my kind of breakfast so yeah. except you hate breakfast so well, you usually I don't know. for lunch so <laughs> I, I hate breakfast if i don't have the right stuff for breakfast but you know muffin 
these these egg McMuffin things are not really McMuffins, but they're egg muffins. They're kind of like little quiches almost. Yeah, ba- basically little mini quiches. So yeah. yeah, those are fantastic. Love them. So yeah, Alrighty. country fried steak and eggs is too. Well, that is true. But that's that's a hell of a lot of work. That'll get me out of bread for breakfast. <laughs> I, I do country fried steak for dinner with you know mashed potatoes and gravy and. Yeah, Russ apparently is quite fond of that. I don't make it very often because it is kind of a pain in the butt to make. But so yeah, I'm kind of like if I ever see that on the menu somewhere, I I just have to order it. Yeehaw! Yeehaw! Russ is over there sniffing his scotch, so I guess I should let him get on with his. (laughs) Oh, we have we have a new segment number here. I see. Yeah, yeah. Apparently so. Yep. He's so special. He, he, <laughs> he's trying to phase me out. It's okay. No, so. I'm not trying to phase you out. I'm just phasing me in. That's all. Uh, so. You get to do the rest of the podcast. Let's see, let's see if I can railroad his uh, whiskey corner. Here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, as of episode number 186, I've written myself in a new segment, which has kind of been unofficial up until now. But in response to Cheryl's recipe corner, I've now added Russ's whiskey corner. Because I didn't want to be specific to scotches, because I like to talk about bourbons and rye and other things as well. I've just been focusing on scotch. So for this week, I actually do have another scotch. I just pulled one off my counter in there, to because uh, I'm pretty sure I haven't talked about this one. At least I hope I haven't. <laughs> what this is, is a Highland scotch, and its name is Glen Garriock. At least as close as I can get to, I think, <laughs> of how it's actually pronounced. It's a 12-year... And it's bottled at a fairly high proof uh, for a Highland Scotch. It's 96 proof, which is 48% ABV. And you can definitely tell that on the nose. It is definitely the standard caramel color for, for a Scotch. This one seems particularly thin. It doesn't have... It's not an oily scotch. It doesn't have much in the way of legs on it, which is kind of interesting. It's all, it's got it's not as viscous as I've seen a lot of scotches, and that might just be the high alcohol content that is keeping that down. Let's nose it here. What? <laughs> That's not. What you do? You stick your nose in the glass. Yeah, I so. know, I know, I know. <laughs> so what I get out of it is I get a lot of the the maturation from the casks. I can definitely pick out the oak and I can definitely pick out the sherry. And other than that, it tastes like, or it tastes like it smells like, um, kind of like mulled wine. Like, um, it's just, it's just fruit basically like, um, dried fruit. Yeah, that's pretty much it. It's basically oak, sherry and dried fruit. So let's try it. Well, interestingly enough, it tastes exactly the same. (laughs) It tastes like oak and sherry and dried fruit. (laughs) So not not terribly complex, but what's interesting is even though that it's 96 proof, it doesn't drink like it is. It's very palatable, and it's not crazy on the alcohol. There's almost like a little bit of leather in it, like way in the background, maybe a little leather, which is actually kind of interesting. I'm not a big fan of Highland Scotches, but this one's pretty good. Even though it's not terribly complex, either nose-wise or taste-wise, what flavors are present there are basically derived from the aging process, so... That really works for me. And there's no peat to speak of at all. Um, I don't get peat at all. It actually drinks more like a bourbon uh, than a scotch. But I actually like it. And now I've decided I'm going to use the 100-point scale that most people who review liquor use. Since I've only tasted it the one time, and I'm kind of doing this off the cuff, I'm going to give this, based on my one drink here tonight, (laughs) an 88 because it's certainly not the best thing I've ever had, but it's far from the worst. So I think an 88 is a good measure for that. I might revise this later on in a future episode, but we'll start there. So Glen Garriock 12-year, 48% ABV, uh, Highland Scotch, matured in oak and sherry casks, uh, nose and taste of dried fruit, sherry, oak, a uh, little bit of extra taste in leather, and a rating of 88 out of 100. If you're listening to my recommendations, I, I would give it a try. And I've seen it anywhere from, I forgot to put price in my list of things to talk about. I've seen it anywhere from 50 to around $80 a bottle. So you have to, I don't know, find the best place to get it. So We bought that at Thanksgiving, and I think I paid 60 so. Yeah, so right in the middle of the range. So somewhere between 50 and 80 you can probably find it. So if you want to try it, Glen Garriock 12-year. And that's it for my whiskey corner. <laughs> All right, so guess what? 
we're down to the social media roundup, and I ran these this list through a randomizing algorithm, so they're Yay! not in the same order this time. Damn it! <laughs> so now I'm gonna have to work on my pronunciation. You know, catch myself if I screw up. So all right. Especially when you start off with John. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it, why'd you put that one first? <laughs> I didn't put that first. You can blame randomize.org. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, okay, whatever, except there's two bills together. Hey, that's random. So Kinda, there you go. I guess. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Okay, so support subscriptions. We have John Fotchke, Bob Yerke, James Blocker, Robert Pitts, Dylan Engel, Stephen Saner, Edward Donnelly, Scott Pettigrew, John Clark, Paul Griffith, Michael Connolly, Donald Gover, Kevin Murray, Alan Wilson, Brian Smith, Ronald Ike, Robert Doherty, uh, Christopher Weaver, Jonas Rulo, Michael Aiello, Darren King, Jeremy Hall, Robert Halliday, Wayne Carpenter, Doug Rudder, Johnny Kinsey, Bill Stearns, Bill Piotr, and Charlie Brown, which is new this week. For Facebook, we have Jeff Miller. Matt McBlair, Alberto Mao, Louis Oscar Riviera, uh, Rivera, Henning Johansson, and Ravy Heen. On Twitter, we have rfraley79, Circuit Crush, uh, BCR Livestream, and IBM Cloud CA. On Google Plus, we have Jim Titzler and Jason Marinero. Jason Marinero is a name that we've had on here before, but now he's on Google Plus, not a subscriber. So. Right. And no one on YouTube, no one on the mailing list, and no merchandise sell. All right, that means we're down to the end. So we will check out the chat room real quick before we run off. I'm not seeing anything going on in the chat room, which means we are kind of down to the end here. Oh, I guess I can look and see who's in the chat room. Well, we have, for people who are awake in the chat room, we have Ted, W-A-0-E-I-R, and we have Jay Rulo, Jonas Rulo, who's in there. And I believe we still have Jim, 7J1AJH. Uh, earlier, we had Symbola, and we had Don, KB2YSI, and we also had uh, KE5WMA, but they all had to go away early. So, But they were all in here. So thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, we're done, which means I push the little button here, and then we hear some music. Yay! So you can become an LHS ambassador. Visit the website for upcoming events and information on how you can represent Linux in the Ham Shack at a nearby Linux Con or Ham Fest. And we talked about a few of those earlier in the show. We love feedback, and we haven't got a lot of it lately, so please send us some. You can email us at info at lhspodcast.info. You can comment on an episode on the website, post on Google+, Facebook, or Twitter. Or leave a voicemail at 1909-LHS-SHOW. That's 1909-547-7469. Visit our IRC channel, Octothorpe LHS Podcast, on Freenode and subscribe to our mailing list. Show merchandise from coffee mugs to t-shirts to wall clocks and everything else can be purchased at www.cafepress.com stroke LHS Podcast. You can also help the show by clicking on the sponsored ads in the right-hand column of the homepage. And please give to our generosity campaign. We really need the help. Listen live every other Monday night, 8 o'clock Central Time. That's Tuesday at 0100 Zulu now in the summer. And it's 0200 Zulu when we get back to wintertime again. Our recording schedule and countdown timer to the next episode are on the website. Please check out http colon stroke stroke lhspodcast.info for everything you ever want to know about the show. Thank you to all of our listeners, live and quasi-live, past, present, and future, and all of the people who have given their time, their shares, and their money to the podcast. We appreciate each and every one of you. Thanks again for listening to episode number 186 of Linux in the Hamshack. I'm Russ, K5TUX. That's Cheryl. Sorry, reading Facebook. (laughs) Say goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. And from not quite spring in Big Sky Country, Montana, Bill, NE4RD. 73, everyone. All right, and we'll see you in two weeks' time. Take care. Good night.
Ikalikalicious.